As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Kai, Sam, DR, and we cover the underreported news of the week. And then I sit down with Dr. Marcus Johnson to discuss racial discrimination in the world of dental health. Uh, so my advice for this week is to step back a little bit and to just like, you know, make the decision that needs to be made to look at all the options. Like I'm an options guy. I like to like think all the things through, even if the option, even if we know we will probably take one path, there's really power in going through what the options are, but you need the perspective to be able to do that. So step back, take the perspective, and then make the informed decision. Here we go. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. We're so excited to have you. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Dre at DIY on Twitter. All right. So friends, family, Diara is going to be joining us in a few minutes. She's running late. But in the meantime, what big news happened this week? The CDC came out with new guidance on masking and social distancing and effectively has said that if you are vaccinated, this is the part that people seem to miss. If you are fully vaccinated, that you do not have to wear a mask and you do not have to socially distance. And that has thrown the whole conversation into a tizzy. What say you, Sam? What say you, DeRay? So there's one thing around, like, what does the science say? And then like, there's another conversation around, like, how, do, how are people going to interpret this and potentially use this to, like, game the system and contribute to furthering the risk around coronavirus? So I think around the science, it's like, yes, the vaccine's super effective, saving lives. Once you're vaccinated, like your risk is so much smaller that like, yes, you should be able to go outside. You should be able to be safe. You're protected. You're significantly less likely to spread it. Great. But like the interpretation of it is, well, if you don't have to wear a mask, how do we know for sure that you're vaccinated? Like, how do we, are people going to use this to game the system and go around without masks who actually aren't vaccinated? And is that going to contribute to making people feel unsafe, like people who are high risk, um, being around so many people without masks, not really having a way to confirm or verify if they're actually vaccinated? What about, you know, situations where uh, people are vaccinated, but, uh, you know, other people are saying in the same events that they're vaccinated when they might have, you know, I'm hearing conversations around fake vaccination papers now and like all of this stuff that is like really you know, this isn't a surprise. You see this with like fake IDs and like fake everything, but like in the context of this, which is really dangerous and it would be really easy for people to just like make a paper card. I think like that is actually like a, uh, uh, something to be war like worried about, uh, people doing. Uh, so, so again, like I think the science is clear that like, yeah, we should be able to go outside and like, I like to be outside and, and like go to restaurants and like, like, like the next person. Um, but also want to be mindful of how people are feeling in this moment. And like, people might not be comfortable being around a whole bunch of people without masks, not being able to verify for sure if they're actually safe. I mean, I, my question is, is the science really clear? Because even if you're fully vaccinated, you can still get COVID. You are not likely to get it as severely, but you can still get it. And I didn't spend, you know, a year in lockdown avoiding COVID only to go out here now and catch it from somebody because everybody is unmasked. I think, you know, I just read an article about eight players and, and staff on the New York Yankees, all fully vaccinated, all just tested COVID positive because, you know, folks are running rampant with it. And I think it's interesting to see how some jurisdictions are not following the CDC's new guidelines. So I live in Washington, D.C., and even though the governor of Maryland lifted the mask restrictions, there were a couple of counties here who said, no, they're actually going to stick with the mask restrictions or the, the mayor of D.C. has an elongated timeline. So I think it's interesting to watch how different jurisdictions handle this. But I'm worried that people are going to go buck wild. I'm worried, Sam, that people are going to lie. I'm worried about a whole bunch of things. And I'm worried about a lot more people catching COVID because we're so pressed to be free, whatever that means. I'd rather be free and careful. 
I know this is like a sort of not part of the main conversation around masks, but one of the things that's also been interesting is to see the huge decline in like the common cold, like people catching the flu has like gone down dramatically just because more people have worn masks and like washed their hands because of coronavirus. So there is like a whole another conversation around mask wearing in general, apart from coronavirus, having health benefits that like we lose if we move to a, you know, completely reopening with the masks, without masks and like going back to normal. So the other thing is that, you know, governors and mayors were completely caught off guard. And this goes back to what Sam was saying about the distinction between the good science and good policy and, and what it means to actually roll out things that people can follow. What would another week have have been to allow businesses to get ready for this, to allow mayors and and governors to actually plan for this. And I know this is sort of a random roping of Kamala, but but when she was in that interview not too long ago and she was asked, is America racist? And she said, no, is that these are things I know people who are like, I'm watching the government lie to me, that like they are lying to me. People are just literally not telling me the truth about some things and expecting me to believe the other things. And it's these sort of fumbles that I think actually just don't help uh, public safety in in the end. And, you know, it's something like it's not yet 50% of Ameri- like adults are vaccinated yet. Like, I don't think we've gotten to 50%. I think we're close. It's like high 40s. I would hate for like a new strain to take hold because we just were putzing about as we rolled out uh, the next step of of the COVID guidance. So, you know, I'm hopeful. There are also still places that are seeing increasing cases, right? And so why not kind of a graduated set of guidance that says when you get down to X, then, you know, you don't have to do Y or when, and, and that's how it started out, at least with prior guidance. But given that people's data is still increasing in some places around cases, it seems uh, not prudent to just issue this blanket free for all. Yeah, it's only 37% of the country is fully vaccinated. Yeah, and we don't even know how long, you know, fully the vaccines last, right? So like in the in the research, like there was research showing that it was about 6 months, I believe, that the effect uh, lasts for about half of the people. So in, so about half the people in the sample were still protected after six months. The other half were not after being vaccinated. And for some people, particularly for older people who are sort of in the first round of vaccines, like that was about like five, six months ago. So like we don't know if the first round is like wearing off and like folks need to get revaccinated or like maybe folks are going around feeling like they're protected, especially like the most vulnerable folks. And like, it could be that the vaccine's actually wearing off at this point and you need a new dose. So like, I mean, all of that is is something that we are just now like going to start seeing because the vaccines just started rolling out like five or six months ago uh, to the first set of people. And we still don't even know like what to expect. My news this week is from The Atlantic and it's an article called The GOP's Critical Race Theory Obsession. And I brought this to the pod because we are seeing a spate of Republican bills, at least a dozen um, Republican bills introduced both in state legislatures and in Congress uh, that revolve around this academic approach called critical race theory. Um, Interestingly enough, while this critical race theory conversation is dominating a lot of political conversations, a recent Atlantic and Ledger poll reports that 78% of Americans had not heard of critical race theory. Going back to the beginning, critical race theory is a theory that was asserted by Derek Bell, who was uh, the first tenured African-American professor at Harvard Law School. And it examines the interaction of race and American law. In fact, proponents of the theory argue that the nation's, our nation's sordid history of slavery, segregation, and discrimination is embedded in our laws and continues to play a central role in preventing Black Americans and other marginalized groups from living lives untouched by racism. That concept has been extended beyond law uh, and is now in conversations in education and healthcare and politics and a bunch of different things. And 
So the Republicans have introduced a number of bills in Congress and state legislatures that would effectively prevent public schools and universities from holding discussions about racism. The bills have very vague language that ultimately serves to censor conversations about racism in public places. What the Republicans say is that, or what these bills say, is that they don't They prohibit divisive concepts. They prohibit race and sex scapegoating. They prohibit questioning meritocracy or suggesting that the United States is fundamentally racist. In fact, conservatives say that critical race theory teaches Americans to hate America. Legal scholars say that these bills impinge upon our right to free speech and will likely be dismissed in court. But the larger purpose, it seems, is to rally the Republican base, both to push back against any re-examination of slavery and segregation and to push back against any attempts to redress historical offenses. That becomes very interesting when we cross-reference that with some of the conversations that we've had about reparations here at the pod. One of the questions that the article addresses is, why all of a sudden, how all of a sudden did the conservatives get so obsessed with critical race theory? Well, it turns out there's a young man named Christopher Rufo, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which is a libertarian think tank. And he ended up, I guess, becoming concerned about critical race theory after hearing from a municipal employee in Seattle about how critical race theory was being used in diversity training in the municipal government in Seattle. And he ended up doing research and Freedom of Information Act requests and whatnot and learned that this kind of diversity training was happening across federal departments and agencies. And so Mr. Rufo began to write that uh, critical race theory, which he describes as the academic discourse focused on whiteness, white fragility, and white privilege, he says is spreading through the federal government through these diversity trainings, and it's being weaponized against Americans. And that set off Um, the Republican interest in and growing snowballing um, concern about critical race theory, such that President Trump signed an executive order banning use of critical race theory by federal departments and contractors in diversity training. That, of course, was challenged in court, and the federal judge agreed that that is a violation of free speech. Mr. Biden rescinded the order, but we're seeing these state legislatures introduce and pass these bills. And so this is, you know, this is the latest chapter in the culture wars. And it's quite concerning because it really does question how we get to have a frank conversation about what has happened and what continues to happen in this country. And so I figured since 78% of Americans are not paying attention to this, we should bring it to the pod and make sure that people know about what's going on. So thanks for bringing this to the to the pod, Kaya. You know, I was wondering what the backstory was behind this, uh, because it's not like there was some explosion of critical race theory in public school systems across the country that was, you know, the way that Republicans have been talking about this. Uh, but it, this, it seems like this is just like one guy who, you know, was on like a crusade or some mission to deal with this fake problem that he s- perceived, which was people better understanding and learning about this nation's history with regard to how black and brown people have been treated historically um, and how the systems and structures that enabled that treatment, the legacy of those systems and structures and many of those same laws and policies continue to exist and continue to affect people's lives and continue to need to be addressed and dismantled. We're seeing state after state, Republican legislature after Republican legislature, deem critical race theory as this sort of existential threat to the nation's children or the the nation's understanding of what it means to be an American or America being somehow inherently good in the world. And like I, you know, even in in the state that that I grew up in, Florida, you know, Governor DeSantis signed a law banning critical race theory, among other things. Uh, and you know, I remember growing up in in Florida, in in Orlando, 
and we got absolutely no critical race theory whatsoever in, in the school system growing up. There, like, this didn't exist. There's not a school in the area, unfortunately, where students are exposed to any of this information by the time that they graduate. What we were exposed to and what students continue to be exposed to is a curriculum that is infused with a narrative around the United States, around US history, um, that is biased, that is biased against black communities, that is biased against indigenous communities, um, that erases uh, the experiences and stories of generations of black and brown people. Um, a curriculum that in Florida, I remember they, uh, you know, as we were growing up, we were being taught in U.S. history, AP U.S. history, that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. Like, that was what we were being taught in school in Florida. So, you know, yeah, there is a biased curriculum out there. There is something that is an existential threat that is really problematic in school systems across the country, and it's the exact opposite of critical race theory. It is the teaching of a narrative and a sort of mythology about this country that enables uh, white people to go on believing that they just built all of this themselves and that they are inherently superior and that black and brown people are at fault for their own condition. And like all of this is like contributing to the dynamic we see today, contributing to policies and systems that cause harm. Um, so, I mean, you know, the Republicans are going to do what they're going to do, but certainly the, I haven't seen any critical race theory in any schools and certainly have seen quite the opposite. I think what I'd add is, you know, I think about Toni Morrison saying that this, the very serious uh, work of racism is distraction. I mean, it's like, think about how many resources, how much money, how much lobbying on our side has been devoted to combating this thing that actually isn't even a, it's not even a problem, right? And just veering us away from dealing with all the structural things that the Republicans are doing, all of the ways that money is being taken away from schools and communities. I know we're talking about police and some other news, but in seeing police departments ramp up because they're like homicides are increasing and it's going to be a deadly summer, like all this stuff that like does require our attention. And yet the Republicans are being really intentional about introducing this ridiculous legislation that we know is bad. But it is just such a distraction device. And Kai, you nailed it. I, I too didn't know where this came from. I was like, did somebody give a critical race theory speech somewhere with somebody's kid in a class and got like, I don't know, turned on to racism being bad? Like what happened? No, none of that. This is like, again, like white supremacy leading us down this random road where we know we got to do something about it, but it actually just takes us away from some of the core work that we have to do. So that's all I have to add here. Uh, you know, I think that we'll win in court on these things, but to even have to go to court to try to win is such a path away from our core work. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. people we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high whether it's keeping the senate taking back the house or stopping republicans at the state level if you're ready to make a real difference sign up for vote save america's 2024 volunteer program and just to make it interesting we're pitting you against each other vote save america will sort you onto a team east or west and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about the team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Building off of Kai's news a bit when it comes to the black women of it all, I got excited by this particular article. It really just talks about all the black women who are running in 2022. Um, I think there's been so much going on, of course, just day to day. It's hard for us to think about the strategy going forward and what the midterms will look like and all of that. Tom Perez said it in terms of, you know, black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party. Duh. But really thinking about the last election in Georgia 
places that are really on the move, both the 2018 midterms and in the 2020 elections, how black women, whether it was in Alabama or Georgia, have really led in terms of organizing, voter engagement, et cetera. Knowing all that and still black women have, you know, just not represented um, anywhere near equitably. Thinking about what, you know, 2022 is going to look like and some of the excitement around some of these candidates, folks like Kathy Barnett, Andrea Campbell, you know, people that are going to be running in Massachusetts, Alabama, and, and elsewhere. So I just, I wanted to bring this one up just because I think it really has been hard to focus on the future in terms of who's running where, what races we need to pay attention to. And so maybe that's something we'll start to do in terms of really starting to ramp us our, our preparedness and awareness around candidates running where and why we should be supporting whom or just some kind of um, food for thought around some of these candidates and a place to kind of watch some of this happen when it comes to black women running um, is Higher Heights. And so check them out if you all are not familiar. Glenda Carr is the CEO there. Um, but, you know, I think they are probably leading an effort um, around strategizing the support of black women candidates across the country. So more to come there, but just wanted to start to have the conversation around what these elections are going to be looking like moving forward. I thought um, some of the statistics that they cited in this article, they are things that like I knew in my head, but seeing and hearing these things one after another really kind of hit me in the gut that though women comprise half of the United States population, we only hold a quarter of seats in Congress, zero black female senators, no black female Republicans, never been a black female governor in our nation's history, and clearly no black female president nor a black female Supreme Court justice. Like hearing those things back to back makes it very clear that, you know, we'll thank a black woman for flipping Georgia or for doing the other things that we've done and still not support and uphold black women's leadership. And so it was heartwarming to me, frankly, to see one of my complaints about the Democratic Party is we seem to play the short game and Republicans seem to play the long game. And so it was heartwarming to see that these folks are strategizing through 2030, right? I would press on and say, and beyond, right? We need to have a strategic plan for Black female leadership past 2030. But the fact that they are planning that long out um, is inspiring to me. And for all of y'all who are thinking about it, run, Black girls, run. Um, you know, 538 did this article recently that said why Biden is unlikely to talk meaningfully about race anytime soon. And they bring up a study that we talked about at one of the episodes on the pod, but they bring out that study that was at Yale um, that suggested that highlighting the benefits of policies around lines of race actually decrease support for them. And they talk about how Biden um, is sort of doing this thing that they call racial distancing. So sort of like highlighting things that are going to benefit people of color, black women, black men, people from marginalized communities, but not explicitly highlighting race. And I am just not sure that that is actually going to work in definitely not for the midterms, but in the long run. I think that what I found is that People want elected officials to talk about race and to talk about it in smart ways. And I think that the idea of just sort of talking about, oh, this will benefit so-and-so or da-da-da, like, I think that a lot of the rhetoric is actually lazy from our politicians about how they talk about race. I think that people are more primed to understand racial inequity, to talk about why we should reverse these policies because they disproportionately impact people. Like, I think that the time is now. I think that the country is actually moving more left. And to not do that feels a real disservice. And I think that... Post-Trump, I think that we barely got people to vote last time, and they voted in record numbers, but it was an uphill battle for all of us who did any voter mobilization. And I think that some people might legitimately check out. I think that, like, not talking about race, people would be like, you know what? The system's a sham. You know, we tried. It didn't change. People wouldn't talk about our stuff. Like, I think that that is, I think we cannot dismiss that. And I think that Trump was so wild that it forced people to participate a little bit more. But I worry that not talking about race might actually lose us people who otherwise would totally be on our side. So my news is about uh, Brooklyn Center, uh, which is the city where Dante Wright was killed by the police. Uh, they just passed legislation uh, this past weekend uh, by four to one vote, uh, a resolution that 
lays out a new path forward for the police department, reconstituting it within a sort of broader public safety department, um, and makes a whole host uh, or proposes a whole host of more transformative changes um, that are really important as a potential model for other cities across the country. Uh, over the past year or so, we've seen a number of cities pilot programs, create alternatives to policing of mental health and traffic offenses and other issues, um, sort of in piecemeal. So, you know, a city uh, like Denver piloted the star program around mental health issues and creating alternatives to that. We've seen in Berkeley, uh, the city has tried to create alternatives to traffic enforcement. We saw in Ithaca, the mayor uh, proposed uh, creating a new public safety agency um, that has different roles where it's no longer a police officer responding to things uh, like traffic enforcement, like mental health, uh, like low-level issues. Uh, and what we see in Brooklyn Center is the combination of all of those things put together in one approach in one city. Um, and that's what makes this so important important as a potential model. So in the resolution, uh, it proposes creating an alternative approach to traffic enforcement, uh, particularly for um, non-moving violations. So these are like the equipment violations, like having an air freshener hanging in your rear view or having a broken taillight. Um, these are type of equipment violations um, that were actually cited as a reason for police uh, to pull over Dante Wright and kill him in the first place. In addition to the traffic enforcement issues, which we know are responsible for, about 120 people are killed by police each year um, after traffic stops alone. In addition to that, it creates alternative responses to mental health issues, uh, where a civilian mental health provider will be responding to those issues. Uh, and again, that is another 100 people nationwide are killed by police in those circumstances. Uh, and then finally, what is potentially the most transformative aspect of uh, this resolution is that it creates a delineation in terms of the power of the police to make arrests. Um, and it prohibits the ar making arrests for uh, misdemeanor offenses, which are the vast majority of arrests that are made uh, nationwide. Uh, so we know that the majority of people who are killed by police nationwide are killed um, in circumstances that reflect the situations that this resolution is designed and targeted to address. Traffic offenses, uh, mental health crises, and uh, arrests for low-level offenses. Um, so that's what makes this resolution so important. Again, it is the start, not a finish. It passed four to one, but now they actually have to build this thing. Um, and, and build it out in a way that makes sense, that doesn't replicate or reinforce some of the issues um, that had been happening within the existing police department, um, and to make sure that that structure that is now being built, um, that will be civilian-led, um, that will be uh, creating alternatives to the police in so many of these situations, that that structure is transparent and accountable as well. So, you know, in reading the resolution, it is a reminder that the devil's in the details. So the resolution, as Sam said, calls for these things to be true, but the policies actually have to be written. And, you know, we have seen this time and time again, and all of us have actually worked, we've either worked in government or have written policies for the government or influenced policies for the government, is that, you know, the the actual details could look a whole lot of ways. So when I think about resolution number four, it says that there's going to be a community safety and violence prevention committee. And importantly, a majority of the people on it have to be city residents with direct experience or the close experience of immediate family members with being arrested, detained, or having other contact with the Brooklyn Center PD. And that group's going to review and make recommendations regarding police response to protests. They actually call out in the resolution that this committee is going to review any draft collective bargaining agreements. I mean, that I've never seen that before. So this is actually really, it's really cool to see this be written here, but I'm most interested to see like how this actually comes together, right? Like who gets appointed? Because it doesn't say how these people can get appointed. It just says that they will be there and like what that looks like. And the second thing too, to Sam's point about uh, that there will be a citywide citation and summons policy, uh, the, the resolution calls for the city manager to implement a policy, but the policy itself is not yet written. So, uh, you know, I hope that as we continue to think about these sort of moves forward, that reporters and the activists, organizers, citizens uh, stay tuned to how these policy things get written, because a lot of people read these articles and they're like, oh, it's done. And you're like, no, 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 no. This is definitely the beginning. And the real rubber will meet the road when the policies actually get written. And I hope that those policies come before the council or there's some sort of public review of them so that they don't just get like put in and nobody even knows. And remember, Brooklyn City is a 
So the mayor is a part-time, it's not a full-time role. City council, you know, it's not, these are not full-time roles. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what the oversight actually looks like as these policies get written. One of the things that I appreciated about this is the inclusion of community voices. I, over my career, have learned that when you co-create solutions with the community, and people have heard me say this on the pod before, um, you get to the best answers, you get to the most sustainable answers. I think the people closest to the problem often have the best solutions. And so I was excited to see the emphasis on how many community voices were engaged in the creation of the process. I take the point in the, (laughs) we got a long way to go to see how this is going to play out, especially as policies get written. Um, But I thought it was very interesting that, you know, or not interesting, expected that the hateration was coming from the police union president. But I liked the mayor's response, which was, listen, we're going to like, we're going to try until we get this right effectively. And people are going to try this stuff. People are going to make mistakes. We should absolutely learn from what's currently out here and not make the same mistakes. Um, And I think there's a lot to be learned already. But I think having the expectation that we are going to have to revise some of these policies, that we're not going to get them all right on the first time, it sets the expectation for the community that one policy or one resolution doesn't change everything. And so I think we have to stay vigilant. I think we have to stay resilient and keep on pushing until we get to the policies that serve us the way we deserve to be served. So mine is around around the police, y'all. The police just out here (laughs) being nefarious in other ways that we, you know, got to talk about. So I've been obsessed with coroners and medical examiners for a while. And then the New York Times put out this piece that was very well done. If anybody from the New York Times is listening, can y'all please list the cases? They say things like, you know, we looked at 45 cases. It's no link to the cases. It's no, like, can somebody link the cases one day? Anybody? Shout out to the Times. Great reporting, but we have no way of, you know, if somebody wants to take this information and do more digging in their town or community, they can't. So please link the cases. But this article is great. It is uh, entitled How a Genetic Trait in Black People Can Give the Police Cover. I mean, I think that's a gentle title. But what this goes on to talk about is uh, sickle cell, is that there's a sickle cell trait is overrepresented in Black people. And there are all these cases where the people have died in police custody and the medical examiner has ruled that their death is actually tied to uh, the sickle cell trait. Now, These cases, when you read about them, again, New York Times, please link to all the cases that you say you've researched, which you don't provide summaries for. Uh, But when you read about it, you're like, come on. It's just another way that the police are just covering up killing people. And I think about there's a case in Baltimore that I knew about. And I actually didn't know until I read this that it was sickle cell. Like, I remember when this happened. I didn't remember that they invoked sickle cell in this process. But it was a 30-year-old guy. He cut his hand on a mirror called the police, and they came to his house, and they killed him. They shot him. They killed him with a stun gun. He died at the hospital, and the medical examiner said it was undetermined, and that part of it was by the sickle cell trait. It's like, it is remarkable the number of people in the system that are not only the police, but that participate in the death of Black people and the covering up of the killing of Black people, and the state's attorney didn't charge any... like. It just, the police are the obvious target, right? Because they do the bad thing, but they don't do it alone. And this article was a reminder that it is impossible for the police to act alone. That there is a system of people at every step who allow it, who enable it, who don't ask questions, who don't challenge. And when I just read more and more about these cases where like, Sickle cell apparently caused people to die in custody. And, you know, and what the New York Times does say is that in every single case that they mention, none of the people actually even had sickle cell. Like it was the presence of the trait alone that doctors were using or that medical examiners were using who are not always doctors. Medical examiners were using to say that the person died. And like, it just blew my mind. The article does a really good job of talking about how this is a pattern. This is not isolated. Uh, You think about, we had a call a week or so ago in our organizing life uh, where I was talking to a researcher who said that there are right-wing groups that are funding this sort of research about these sort of links, that like things that the police are not killing people, that they must be dying some other way. 
And it just it both broke my heart because I can imagine all these families who are getting no no sort of accountability or closure, and essentially people being blamed for their own deaths that like they did this to themselves. And you're like, it is just wild. So I wanted to bring it here. Uh, You obviously know a, a death that was coded as a medical emergency, and then that was not true, and that is the death of George Floyd. If we not seen the video, that the police would have had us believe that he died for some other reason. Uh, And then the last thing I'll say about this is that in the Times, and they tweeted this, in the Times researching this article, they found a case from 1973 that was criticized by a doctor named Dr. James Bowman, who is none other than Valerie Jarrett's father. And what he notes, he says, I'll just read this. He says, in early 1974, I was involved in expert testimony before a grand jury in a case in Illinois that could lead to an unfortunate precedent for persons with sickle cell trait. A man who had sickle cell trait was allegedly beaten and strangled and suffocated with a blanket by guards in a prison hospital during the process of subduing violent acts of the prisoner. Merely because sickle cells were found intravascularly at post-mortem examination, the Cook County coroner and a consultant medical legal examiner from another state claimed that death was a result of a sickle cell crisis following pressure on the neck, which led to hypoxia. There's a legacy of this. I mean, it both broke my heart and reminded me of like when we talk about this being systemic and historical it is at every level you know thanks for bringing this to to the pod deray this for me this reminded me of the fact that there is so much that we either don't know or is not being tracked when we look at the data on police violence because of things like this because of you know a medical examiner deciding to and again, the medical examiner isn't always a doctor, but the medical examiner just deciding that, you know, this person who was strangled by the police uh, actually died of uh, hypertension or actually died of excited delirium or, you know, might have had marijuana in his or her system from a joint, you know, a week ago. Like, it's stuff like that that they literally can rule uh, in ways that completely exonerate or ignore or act like the police uh, played no role at all in killing somebody. Um, And when we look at how that aggregates up in the the context of data, um, those cases are not tracked in the Washington Post police shootings database, for example. Um, You know, when we do the mapping police violence tracking, it's really difficult to figure out um, in some of these cases where the only information that is provided is the statement from the police and what the medical examiner says. And so if you include the the case in the database, then, you know, the right wing sort of ecosystem and the police will say, well, actually, that wasn't us. You were attributing this falsely to us and making us look like we did something we didn't do. And then you see the video and it's like, well, actually, you are just trying to cover this up. And if not for the video, if not for the bystander who was courageous enough uh, to report what happened, um, if not for those things, they would have covered it up, right? The medical examiner, the police department, the, in some cases, the DA's office um, play a role in counties and cities across the country um, in colluding on some of these investigations, in ruling them in ways that try to evade any and all culpability for murder, for, for killing people. Um, on the part of the government, on the part of police departments, on the part of these agencies. So it, it is a huge issue. Um, I know that you know, excited delirium and um, sickle cell are sort of two of the biggest um, things that I've heard of in, in this conversation, but I think that there are probably so many other things that we um, don't know about that, that are probably happening. Like sickle cell is new to me after this article um, like blew my mind. Like we know about excited delirium for a while in the context of people who are killed by tasers. That's often something that police use. They excite excited delirium as this thing that the person just got really excited and died as if they weren't electrocuted. Um, but, you know, again, these are things that have just sort of been made up um, by medical examiners, by police departments, um, as excuses to cover up the damage and the harm that they've caused. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 
All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop Dr. Johnson serves on the American Association of Endodontics Public and Professional Relations Committee, where he hosts the Endodontic Podcast, Endo Voices. He has the goal of bringing equality to dental care across the world. And today we talk about why racial disparities exist in the world of dental health and what we can do about it. I love him. He's a good guy. And I learned so much. Let's go. Dr. Johnson, thanks so much for joining us here on Power of the People. Hey, Jeray. It's a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me here. I really support the platform and love what you're, uh, the information you're bringing to the people. So thank you. It's so good to have you here. Now, uh, can you talk to us, just start us off with like, how did you get to being a dentist? Like, what does that even, like, what was the path? Did you always wake up and care about teeth? Did something happen and you were like, this is what I want to do? Uh, and then how did you like start to specialize in this part of dentistry? All right. You know, I'm happy to take you on that journey. You know, ever since I was 11, I always wanted to be a dentist. And I'll kind of get into, you know, the backdrop of how that developed. But, of course, I have to acknowledge my parents. You know, they always encouraged me to, you know, study and work hard. And, uh, you know, they were, you know, college graduates well after I was into uh, middle school and things like that. But that, those were always the conversations we had. Uh, you know, I had a phenomenal dentist, Dr. Michael Ontiveros. And, uh, you know, he was everything that you thought a dentist should be. He was well-respected in the community, very kind, made you feel very comfortable, did great work. But I always just kind of saw him on this platform with his white coat as, something that really wasn't too attainable. I was in the store one day and I was hanging out with my dad who stays in a sweatsuit. He's just like a perennial athlete, always likes to work out. And I happened to see someone that I thought looked like Dr. Ontiveros. So I said, dad, is, is that Dr. Ontiveros? He's like, indeed that is. And it blew my mind because at the time, uh, Dr. Ontiveros was in a sweatsuit just like my father. So I drew that line of congruence from that to say that, hey, this guy is just like my dad. My dad was my hero. And from there, I just said, you know what? Dentistry seems like something I definitely want to do. And uh, the Lord has blessed me from then. You know, I've just been able to stay in that vein and really never wavered. You know, it's just been a phenomenal experience to be able to realize something at such a young age. And now as a grown man, to speak from the perspective of kind of attaining that dream and making it a reality. And uh, I guess to kind of tie that into how I did, uh, went into endodontics, which is the specialty arm of dentistry, which is to save natural teeth and pretty much uh, eliminate pain. We're the pain specialist, experts in pain management. I had always wanted to be a dentist. Once I got to dental school, did everything you needed to do, but I realized I just wasn't too cut out to be a dentist. I didn't like multitasking, doing a denture here, going over to do a cleaning there. And I uh, just found mentorship within the endodontic community and uh, was able to study under some phenomenal individuals, more specifically Dr. Andre Mikkel out in Case Western, who was my chairman at the time. And I must say, I'm so blessed and thankful that I chose this profession. And uh, I think it would probably be remiss of me if I were not to just uh, put this out there, that May is Save Your Tooth Month, which was an initiative that was developed by the American Association of Endodontists. So it's really quite cool, and it's a pleasure just to be here with you to discuss uh, dentistry, but more specifically, the specialty of endodontics. And endodontics is like, um, that's like root canals, 
taking teeth out? What, what are like the, for those of us who are like, we have no clue what that means. What are the things that endodontists like specialize in, like the actual things that we would know? Indeed. Yeah. Allow me to kind of demystify that space for you. And it's funny because even though, you know, my mom, obviously she loves me and she knows what I do. Even when I told her I was going to study endodontics, she's like, okay, so you're going to be doing braces? Like, you know, what's going on here? Um, but orthodontics is braces and endodontics is the specialty, like I said, of saving natural teeth. Essentially, we are working within the tooth, endo, and dontics is the tooth. So we're working inside the tooth, pretty much eliminating any bacteria, decay, infection, inflammation that may cause someone to have pain, and allowing them to restore or keep their natural tooth and their natural dentition so that they can maintain a healthy and functional lifestyle. The art and science of endodontics is progressing so fast that there are so many advanced technologies, uh, just for the people listening, we have two years of advanced training beyond dental school. So we complete dental school, which is four years, and then we go into specialized for at least another two to three years in a residency program where all we do on a day-to-day basis is root canals. And uh, we do not take teeth out. That would more or less be within the spectrum of a oral surgeon. So on a day-to-day basis, we are looking at ways to restore natural teeth and eliminate pain. Got it. Now, one of the one of the reasons that I was interested in bringing on the pod is that we covered some dental health stuff, like I don't know, in the first 100 episodes, and and now we're we're over 200. But I saw that there were uh, racial and ethnic disparities that showed up in dental procedures amongst kids of color. Like there were there were these studies that seemed to suggest that we weren't saving as many teeth with black and brown kids or black and brown adults. And I wanted to just understand like what that process looks like. I've been to a lot of dentists over the years and, you know, I've never had a tooth pulled, but I have definitely had doctors recommend it. And I'm like, no, 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 let's just see if we can do a root canal. And they're like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. And I'm like, let's just see. And then they do it and it, and it works. But how, how do you see racial disparities show up in the field? And what can doctors like you do to save teeth? What can we do to save teeth? Well, we have to really promote dentistry as, you know, just a profession as well, uh, but just oral health in general. And, uh, you know, I applaud the American Association of Endodontists, which, you know, I'm a board member of, for actually coming up with a strategic initiative where we were kind of focused on first educating the public about what an endodontist does in our advanced training. Uh, But then secondly, we wanted to get the public, engage them to value saving their natural teeth. And so once you at least have that awareness out there, everything can flow from there. And when we really look at uh, racial disparities, ethnic, uh, you know, issues and social economic sort of factors and how that plays into oral health care. In 2000, I think it was uh, the Surgeon General at the time was David Satcher. He actually wrote a report which focused on oral health. It was like an oral health report. And that was the first time that the Surgeon General had brought that to the forefront. And what he was highlighting was that specifically within children, and we can talk about the disparities a little later, there was a, a rampant caries problem. And caries is just structured term for cavities. And he really looked at this and said, this was a global problem. Dental disease was affecting more children than any other condition worldwide. And so when you think about that, to put that focus on dentistry and oral health and tying it into general health was really significant. And so we understand that allowing children to have access to care, to be able to go to the dentist and have that coverage really said a lot about the importance of oral health care. Now, if we fast forward to once the Affordable Care Act was kind of introduced, what was good about that is it, again, re-brought the focus back on oral health care, specifically within children. But it really didn't do too much to address uh, some of those disparities that we may see in communities that have a lower socioeconomic status or maybe just not uh, a strong access to care. And, And so that's where I step in, and that's where we have to rely on the leaders within dentistry to actually elevate the profession through diversity. Um, You know, similarly how I shared my story, I was very motivated and inspired by my dentist who happened to look like me. And so it just kind of made sense. Hey, you know, you're kind of attracted to similar ideas that you can share or someone that may look like you. So in my position, currently I'm the uh, New York State Association of Endodontists president I want to be a visible individual. I want to be on a platform where my knowledge is accessible. I can bring unique skills and sets and talents to really figure out ways that we can address the oral care problem 
and really get to the, uh, the people that need it within those communities. If we look at just the U.S. population, and specifically African Americans, or just black in general, probably no more than 13%, right? Maybe 12.8% nationwide. So when we look at those statistics, the fact that the dental market share has never been more than 4% in terms of uh, you know, black Americans as, as dentists, we have to look at what factors may be affecting that. You know, we kind of have to consider, is it something to do with institutional culture, uh, faculty privilege, you know, implicit bias? What are the factors at play as to why these numbers are staying stagnant? And when we look at our Hispanic and Asian counterparts, we see that they are continually tracking towards more representation within dentistry. Just to give you an example, I would say that the Asian population probably is no more than about 6% nationwide, right? But when we look at dentistry from 2000 to uh, 2021, we have seen steady growth to now where they represent about 18% of the dental market share, which is phenomenal. We applaud them for that. But we have to look at what factors may be allowing different groups to realize greater numbers of representation in dentistry. What are the factors? Like, why are, is it, is it like debt? Is that one of the reasons? That's what I feel like I've heard before. Like the going to, going to doctor, to be a doctor in general is expensive, to be a dentist is expensive. Dentistry isn't covered under general health insurance. So like your reimbursement rates are lower or something like that. Like the cost of entry is harder or is it something else that they're not a lot of dentistry schools or they're not enough slots or like, I don't know. What is, what do we know? I guess we should first kind of dispel a couple of myths. Dentistry is really not expensive. Now, when you happen to need what we call major treatment, maybe due to some sort of neglect, or some people just may not have access to care. So we're talking about when you're trying to do uh, procedures like root canals, implants, crowns, bridges, things of that nature, dentistry does definitely take on a higher price tag. Um, But if we're just talking about preventative and diagnostic services, under most plans, that is going to be 100% covered with no sort of copay, with no need for that. So when we talk about student debt, yes, student debt is a major factor that maybe prevents dentists from going out and practicing within communities where they may be not receiving as much reimbursement for their dental procedures, making it a little bit more of a challenge to actually cover off some of their student debt. But again, that's after someone has already come out of dental school. What we need to focus on is developing pipeline programs that specifically highlight ways to elevate diverse minds with uh, unique talents and skills and elevating them to leadership positions. Therefore, we can be the ones to enact change from that level downward. And so it it really starts with uh, developing pipelines. For instance, the American Dental Education Association, they have developed a toolkit which really focuses and encourages uh, diversity within leadership positions. And, and just to give you another perspective, if we look at dentistry in general, the ADA is more or less our parent organization. As the American Association of Endodontists, which I'm part of a member, we are one of the 12 specialties under that umbrella of the American Dental Association. Half of those specialties have never elevated a non-white president. So think about that. Okay, and that's not to say that they're not qualified individuals. There definitely are, but there has to be a shift in the culture of how we view leadership and what that really looks like and unpack these antiquated thoughts and beliefs that were once held and oftentimes prevent uh, barriers to us providing new programs and initiatives focused on access to care and proper health care. One of the things that I think is so interesting about doctors in general is that sometimes we don't know how to advocate for ourselves in the room because, like, a lot of us don't go to the doctors a ton. So we go because our tooth hurts or we go because it's our annual cleaning. What are the questions that we should be asking in the room where the doctor's like, I think I need to pull your tooth? Or, you know, I think one of my really good friends, um, she went to one doctor and they were like, you need this extensive surgery. And she was like, let me just go get a second look. And like the other doctor was like, oh, we can tighten this up. We don't need to really do surgery. Like what, what are the questions that, that people should be asking of the dentist when they go? Going to the dentist, first of all, uh, I guess you want to first ask yourself, what's going to allow you to be comfortable? Uh, and so because once you're more comfortable in that setting, you're more likely to feel comfortable posing the questions directing you to getting the proper oral health care you need. 
So that's first and foremost. But whenever there is a diagnosis and within that diagnosis, subsequently you're going to major work, like I said, maybe a root canal or extraction, a crown. Now, we're not talking about cosmetics. Cosmetics is usually just based out of desire. You know, if someone is wanting veneers or, uh, you know, a new smile, that's fine and dandy. But those really are uh, beyond what we're talking about when it's just care that is necessary to restore your natural dentition back to a healthy state. Never hurts to ask, well, is there a specialty service or a specialty provider that I can just maybe have a second opinion with? If someone is saying, hey, you know what, you're going to need a root canal, we know that most times general dentists do great work in terms of root canals. However, endodontist does a root canal on a day-to-day basis, and we have advanced technology and training, which allows us to be very efficient in diagnosis and treatment of endodontic disease or teeth that need root canal. So it never hurts to say, well, is there a specialist maybe you could recommend me to for a second opinion? You can always get a second opinion from a general dentist as well. I think it just kind of starts within that vein of being comfortable and knowing first, is there a specialty or another resource where I can actually get some more information? If someone really wants to take it upon themselves, you can always visit the American Dental Association webpage, the American Association of Endodontists, you know, trusted peer-reviewed websites and resources that are going to give you relevant information based within the science and the data to support the current trends and best practices. What are some of the most common misconceptions that you have to deal with in, in the office? Like when people come in and they, they've heard something, you're like, no, that's not necessarily what it is. Like what are, are there any myths that we should dispel around the dental process? And do you do, do endodontists do gum issues too, or just, I know some people have like whatever the technical term is for like inflamed gums or like, um, <laughs> right, like right. where you get, where you need like deep cleaning, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I'll start there. Um, there is a specialty or another arm of dentistry that deals specifically with what we call the periodontium or the gums, and that's known as a periodontist or the study of periodontology. So there is a specialty for that, and if someone does have some gum issues, of course, you can start with just the basic cleaning from your hygienist, or sometimes the general dentist may conduct that for you, but if you need more advanced work, then usually you're going to kind of seek out the specialty care from a periodontist. But in terms of you know, miss to dispel, I think the biggest one is that patients oftentimes feel that going to the dentist, you're going to be put in a lot of pain and, and nothing can be further from the truth. When you go to a practice and experienced professional, and we're just for this conversation discussing endodontics or the specialty of endodontics, we are specialists in managing pain. So you come in in pain and we know how to properly anesthetize you, get you comfortable so that we can eliminate whatever ailment it is that is plaguing you and get you back to health. Now, postoperatively, yes, you may have some soreness and maybe some you know, discomfort, but we can always manage that with either antibiotics if needed and any sort of you know, pharmacology. So understanding that when you go to the dentist, you're actually going to be relieved from pain. But the, I think it's hard for patients to process that when you go in pain, Obviously, you're a little bit, uh, your fears are heightened, things of that nature, but in actuality, you go to the dentist to get out of pain. In addition, I think another misconception is that patients often feel that if they've had root canal, that a tooth can never have a problem again. Yes, if someone has a root canal, we hope that the tooth will be fine for a lifetime, but sometimes you still have to have additional work beyond that. But understand that first, after you get a root canal, we're cleaning the tooth out, we're uh, restoring it back to natural dentition or natural state of function, oftentimes that's going to require you to have a crown or a full coverage, something to protect the tooth after that work has been completed. And so if there's anything that the pandemic has shown us outside of so many social justice issues and you know, just economic and political concerns of the world is that within dentistry specifically, we have seen that effect manifest in the dental chair through cracked teeth. And so for whatever reason, maybe a patient is at home, they're munching more, you know, they're snacking more often, or just the unrest just because of the high degree of uncertainty, they're grinding and clenching their teeth, and they are cracking their teeth. So after you have a root canal, it is possible to crack your tooth, and then that would either cause you to have that tooth extracted, or sometimes we can still save those teeth based on the level of the crack. 
So I think that's another misconception is that if I have a root canal, I never need to have that tooth worked on again. Is a cracked tooth and a chipped tooth the same thing, or are they two different things? I guess there's levels. We should start off by saying that cracked teeth are going to occur oftentimes due to what we call parafunctional habits. Someone is grinding, clenching, uh, things of that nature. Of course, trauma, you know, you're playing sports, you take a fall. And if you happen to fall, you can chip part of your tooth. So those terms are really interchangeable, crack and a chip. Now, understand, though, if you crack the tooth to the point where now the nerve is involved, that in itself warrants a situation where an endodontist like myself or a dental practitioner needs to perform a root canal. If you just happen to have a chipped tooth where maybe the corner is chipped, but you're not in any pain because the nerve has not been breached, there's been no disruption of that layer, uh, then usually some sort of basic cosmetic bonding will restore you back to a healthy smile without needing any further intervention. So uh, a chipped tooth would essentially be a classification of a crack. And have you, did you, have you seen a lot of chipped teeth uh, when people are coming back from COVID? Have you seen anything else? Like it, was, it, was it a lot of decay or did people do it in your experience, do a good job of taking care of their teeth? Or what's your assessment of what, what happened to people's mouths during COVID? <laughs> well, you know, uh, COVID has taken a number on all of us and, and it definitely has taken its toll on people's teeth. I think most notably there was a editorial in the New York Times and uh, this was back, I think, in maybe... November or October 2020, and they were um, focusing on the significant uptick that the dental community was witnessing in terms of cracked teeth. And actually, one of my colleagues who's a classmate was actually being interviewed for the article, and it's been just across the board. Like I said, you know, people coming in just from the high degree of uncertainty, grinding their teeth, clenching their teeth, they're sitting in front of a computer more. And, you know, they're munching more frequently, eating snacks and things of that nature. Uh, so so we've, we've seen it all, but I definitely have seen, in compared to other years prior, more cracked teeth uh, due to the this pandemic setting. So as you come to a close, what are, what are some pieces of advice that you have for their, their parents listening? What, what's advice to them about how they should, what they should do to take care of their kids' teeth? Uh, what's your advice to adults who are thinking about what to do with their teeth? And, like, how do we think about what should change structurally so that we know that people who come from marginalized communities or low-income communities can have better access? Yeah, fantastic. I think it's a great way to sum it up. You know, when it comes to kids, get in there early. Uh, as soon as those teeth kind of come in, even beforehand, it never hurts to just get seek the care of a pediatric specialist. Even a general dentist is perfectly fine. Uh, we know that we can seal those teeth. Sealing is a way to have a protective covering over tooth so that as soon as they come in, they're less likely to develop cavities because cavities develop through the acid in the mouth and the breakdown of the tooth. You know, I'm not going to get too scientific, but ultimately it's when the bacteria have access into the tooth. So if the top of the tooth is sealed, it's going to be much harder for bacteria to gain access. So by all means, any parents with young children, please ask your dental practitioner about uh, sealants, and that's the best thing they can do moving forward. And you can continually seal those teeth if the sealant comes off. Um, I mean, there, there's so much to be said about just uh, consistency. American Dental Association, when we looked at an uh, analysis of dental benefits used by adults and kind of those spending habits and expenditures, they realized that maybe one out of three adults, and we're talking about, of course, like 19 to 65, did not have one dental claim submitted annually. So what is that showing us? That's showing us that people are not utilizing their benefits. So if you're going to have dental insurance, be sure that it's worth it. You know, like I said, maybe run that cost analysis. Look at it and say, if I'm paying this premium, uh, but I'm not actually utilizing this dental insurance, maybe it's something I don't need and maybe I'll just pay out of pocket. And so if you can figure that based on your own basic uh, cost analysis, I'm not really going to spend more than $600 with the premiums, the co-payments, the co-insurance, all those fees adding up, it comes out to around that amount. So you can kind of balance that out and see how it works for you. Um, and lastly, when it comes to impacting real change, access to care, you know, providing the necessary care to, to those in need, it really starts with us. And I don't want to sound like I'm pompous or on my high horse, but when we're talking about marginalized communities, we have to understand that who better to take care of us than us, right? 
And that's one of the reasons why I share my time between my private practice and I teach as well in uh, Interfaith Hospital in Brooklyn, which is in Bed-Stuy, so that I can still share that responsibility and be there where I need to be because I can't tell you the impact that it has when I see a young kid and they say, oh, man, this guy just happens to look like me the same way I was inspired by my dentist who happened to, uh, you know, have some similarities in just how we looked and how we act and talk. And we really have to step into those leadership roles. I mean, I applaud anyone who studies any sort of discipline, specifically those, my, my dental counterparts. But I really feel that we have to do so much more. It's okay to be a dentist. It's okay to be on Instagram and things of that nature, promoting the culture. But we really have to take a step back and get involved. And I can't speak highly enough of organized dentistry and the way that it has benefited and supplemented my career. And I'm, I'm better for it. And I think that we have to really step into those positions and start visualizing what does oral health care look like moving forward and how do we shift these numbers so they're more representative of what we see, uh, you know, the demographics across the nation. Cool. We can see the front of the pot. I can't wait to have you back. Thanks so much. It's good to be on here and keep doing what you're doing, man. It's been a blessing. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe.